Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview from the 2018 Code Conference, which I co-produced with Recode's executive editor, Peter Kafka. This is an interview I did with Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snap. Let's take a listen. Social media, it turns out, is important to our country, uh, as it turns out. So we have a lot to talk about in these next two sessions. The first person I'm bringing out is someone who's been at Code before, was here many years ago, just pointed out to me. Someone I think is really creative, a really interesting entrepreneur, has had a tough time since he went public and lots of issues, but he's here to talk about that. Um, He just got bothered by my 13-year-old explaining what he did and didn't like about the app. But, and my 16-year-old just sent me a whole long list of things, so we're gonna go into that. So without further ado, Evan Spiegel, co-founder and CEO of Snap. Oh, one of the things you just, congratulations, he just had a baby. You can just say congratulations to him. Um, how's, it, how's it going so far? It is, literally, it is literally the greatest thing in the world. Yes, as it turns out, it is. By miles. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right, so, uh, and it's a boy, right? Little boy. Yeah. Good, well, you'll like that. I, I have mine, I like them very much. Um, I'm enjoying them very much. Uh, so let's start about that. I, I'm not kidding, my kids are on Snapchat a lot, especially my 16-year-old, he grew up with Snapchat. Um, I hate to do anecdotal things, but I watch him use it a lot. Um, and he, he, he was mad about the redesign, like furious. He sent me, he was like, tell Evan I'm very upset about this. And I'm like, I think I won't. Uh, but he, he had a whole long list of issues. And yet he uses it almost continually. He's always on it. He uses it for communication. He uses it, and he does it so in such a facile way. So talk a little bit about this redesign because it was very controversial. It had an impact on your business. So talk about, walk us through what you think happened and the mistakes you made and what you were trying to do to fix it. Well, first, please thank him for using the yeah. service. Okay, good. Despite the redesign. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think fundamentally, if you look at the redesign, it's really in- important to try and understand the problem that we were trying to solve. Okay. And when we looked at social media, one of the biggest problems that really stood out to us was this constant conflict between needing to have a small group of friends to feel comfortable expressing yourself, but also needing to have a large group of friends so that you can watch more content. Right. And traditionally what's happened, especially because social media businesses make their money with advertising, is that those businesses try to encourage you to add as many friends as possible. Right. And then at some point, because you've added all these friends and some of them you don't know, and maybe you now have a thousand friends, you feel uncomfortable actually creating yourself. And that for us uh, was worrisome because our business is all about empowering people to express themselves. That's what we've tried to do. That's why we open into the camera. And so we wanted to find a way to empower people to express themselves, to keep that small group of friends, but at the same time, expose the whole world of content that's on Snapchat that people want to watch. And so... Uh, I, I think if we look at the execution, um, you know, in terms of the philosophy, uh, I'm excited about the progress we're making. In terms of the execution, we have to continue to evolve and iterate the product to get the result that we're looking for. So you, you and I talked about this. We had a great talk in Venice at your office, which he, Evan has a hard time talking in public and private, but in public, you're quite private, you're quite passionate about how you were thinking about the theories around what you were doing. And you were solving for a problem that these social networks had gotten too big and too anonymous and, and, and the behaviors change on them as people use it. So when you got this feedback, what do you, when you saw it, what did you think? And how did you make the decision? Because I think you just made it on your own theories and not on data, which other people tend to, or, or not. Explain how you decided to do it. 
We use a combination, obviously, of data and also our own intuition about the underlying problem and our philosophy uh, that guides us there. I think the thing that we always try to do when we release a product, if we believe that that underlying philosophy, that that reasoning is sound, we're willing to push out a product knowing that that solution may change over time. And we try to stay open to the wide uh, solution space, effectively, um, and, and iterate as quickly as possible. And one of the things that I've noticed with our team is that if we lean too heavily on data, we just wait and wait and wait and can get stuck in very small iterations rather than looking more broadly uh, at new solutions. And so for us to just continually push forward as a company, I think is really important, as long as that underlying philosophy uh, is sound. So what, you, what do you need to do about this redesign? And what did you learn from it as an, as an executive? I mean, you're a relatively new executive, and we'll get into the IPO part of it in a minute. But what did you learn as a as to do about that? Because this is your pro you don't have 20 products. You don't have nine different divisions and things like that. Well, one of the things, honestly, that I underestimated at the time was um, how much it would impact, for example, our investors or our team. You know, if you remember, I think after our Q4 earnings, our stock was up like 50% in one day, right? right? So everyone's like really excited and they just could not comprehend why we would totally change our product and redesign the service, mm -hmm. right? Uh, after that amazing blockbuster earnings. And so for me, that was a really great lesson uh, because to me, it teaches the importance of having that long-term conviction, even though uh, it's gonna surprise people, even though it'll make people feel uncomfortable. And so we really tried to, you know, let people know that we expected some disruption. But despite doing that and despite trying to prepare uh, you know, our community, but also the investor community and our team for, for the disruption uh, that we thought would come with the redesign, it still really had an impact. And so I think as people get to know our business over time and as they build trust with us and they see us make more of these decisions, you know, I think when we were a private company, and we've talked about this a million times, we made a lot of decisions that people thought were totally wild, right? Whether it was ephemeral communications or stories or lenses, you know, these, these are concepts that were really hard for people to understand the time. But our conviction in that underlying philosophy that drove the product development uh, is what allowed us to, to continue to, to build for the long term. Well, can you operate in that space in public? You do have public investors, you have the stock, you have the pressure on the stock. Does that make it impossible? Or, I mean, you can be in a Jeff Bezos-like position who did that for years, but do you have that trust of investors to be able to do that? It's going to be a process to build that trust. I think the first time uh, we started building that trust was really around the transition in our advertising business. So uh, about 18 months ago, all of our advertising was sold uh, by salespeople, right, direct sales. And we realized that we would be unable to scale the business to reach millions and millions of advertisers if all of our ads were sold right. by people. We had to create software to do that. And we had to take our business through a transition to move from that direct sales force to programmatic advertising. And that was another example, I think, where people were worried about it because with a direct sales force, you have fixed prices for your advertising. And with programmatic, you have a dynamic auction that determines your pricing. And because we don't have as many advertisers in our auction yet, that pricing is lower because there aren't as many people competing to buy those ads. But and it's so, the right decision. And it's the right decision for the long term. And we saw that impact uh, on our revenue after, after we went public and we took that criticism. And then by Q4, I think people saw uh, how the programmatic business really impacted revenue and, and got comfortable with that decision. But they punished us for a couple of quarters. And so I think it's gonna take a cycle of doing that uh, a few times uh, before we build that trust. So you're just gonna piss people off for quarter after quarter or what? <laughs> oh, it's <We're> funny. Gonna... <laughs> 
We're going to try really hard not to piss people off. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and we really try to be thoughtful and communicate about the yeah. decisions we're making. But ultimately, um, you know, I think people are going to have to see that consistency where, you know, we release ephemeral messaging and it doesn't make sense to people. And then several years later, it, it makes sense and it's the dominant behavior. And I think we've done that now with a number of products. And so, you know, a couple of years from now, I hope we're sitting here and uh, the design talking, is about, fantastic. Yeah, right. <laughs> talking about how great um, it is. So, so would, you, would you go back on the design and some of these things that people didn't like? What don't you think people what would you change back or what do you, you, you that you listen because part of you doesn't want to right I, this is the way I want to go well, we changed one big thing almost right away and uh, one of the mistakes that we had made was combining your communications with uh, the stories that you wanted to watch and we tried to put that all in one place for your friends um, because we thought it would make the app feel more familiar so instead of seeing for example you know opening the app and seeing a celebrity you always saw your friend and we, we really uh, thought that was important to building uh, deeper relationships with your friends. And I think the mistake that we made was that people think really differently uh, about their communication than they do uh, about watching stories. And stories is more of a lean back experience. You're bored, you have some time to kill, you're, you're waiting for your friend to reply, and so you start watching content on our service. And so having stories get in the way of that communication behavior I think was really frustrating to people. So we changed that really quickly, that's already out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think making a positive impact, and we're just gonna continue to iterate. Um, but I think the important thing is really that, you know, I, I think we've solved this really challenging problem of being able to maintain a smaller group of your close friends so you feel comfortable expressing yourself and also opening up the, the world of content on Snapchat. All right, let's talk then about going public since this is about that. Like, how do you, how's it going? <laughs> it requires, um, <laughs> I would say a bit of, uh, a bit more grit um, right. than being a private company. Uh, yeah. I, th I think, one of the things that's interesting, when you're a private company, you can sort of smooth out the ups and downs uh, mm -hmm. in a way that's harder when, when you're public because you have to talk about uh, metrics all the time. But I think the important thing for us is building that muscle of not putting numbers before doing the right thing for the people that use our service. Right. And this is a really good time to do that because embedding that culture really early in our business is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And so for our team to see our commitment to doing the right thing for our community, doing the right thing for people um, over the long term, I think will really serve the business for a long period of time. And so do you regret not staying private then? Smoothing out things <laughs> as you do this? I think this was the logical step forward uh, in being an independent company. So when we raised a lot of money from venture capitalists, right. you know, I guess our first investor invested at like a $4.25 million valuation. Right. Right? The understanding from the venture capitalists was that we were going to provide an exit for them. And yeah. that was either going to be in the form of an acquisition or that would be in the form uh, of an IPO. Right. And so you did it for the venture capitalists? Because they don't care. And you shouldn't care about them, but go ahead. But <laughs> To, to be honest with you, like we do, we do care about them, and we do, we do care uh, uh, about our investors. And, right. and I think for us, this was a really great transition to take, you know, what is ultimately short-term capital. Uh, venture investors are short-term investors; they right. invest for a couple of years, and then um, they rotate out of their investments. And so we were able to transition inherently short-term investors to long-term investors. And you know, despite you know there being a little volatility that comes with that, ultimately that's the right thing to do to build our right. business. So how have you developed this as CEO? I mean, you started this very young. You're still very young. Uh, how is it being a public company? See, and what has it done? Because you're you're much. You spend a lot more time on creativity, on instinct. It seems. Uh, talk about that. How you think you are as a manager, and we'll talk about things that have happened internally at the company. You've lost a lot of executives. It's been. You know. Listen. 
I remember when Facebook went through nine COOs at once before they settled on the right one. But um, talk about that, that, that transition of, of your ability to move forward. Yeah. Um, well, for us, you know, this year, the, the big theme for us, the number one priority in the business was our team performance. And mm -hmm. so our entire leadership team has really been focused on that. And we've totally changed a ton of our uh, processes around people. And I, I can speak specifically to the way that I give feedback to our team and, and sort of right. how we've evolved in the last you know, year sure. or so. So one of the things that I noticed uh, is that I really needed to spend a lot of time thinking about what works best for my style. Like what's, what's the best way that Evan can be a great leader instead of trying to emulate other CEOs or other great were leaders. Were there any ones you were trying to emulate? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, and, and tons who? that are who mentors. Was, who? Uh, John Donahue is a, a good example. And mm -hmm. he's actually the one who inspired uh, me to really focus on coaching because we went on a walk and he was like, Evan, think about how much time athletes spend training for every minute they spend playing. He's mm -hmm. like, why don't you do more coaching? It's like, great idea, thank yeah, you. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that we've done is really formalize our coaching practices. Uh, at Snap, we actually have coaches that work with every single member of our leadership team, and then I work together with all of those coaches mm -hmm. uh, to try and, and constantly improve. And I think outside of that, I've noticed that written feedback works really well for me. So I write letter, you know, letters to our team about uh, their, you know, individuals specifically about their performance. We combine that with 360 reviews, both for myself and everyone else on the team, so it's not just my perspective. Um, and then everyone develops their own plan and then works with their coach to implement it. And so I think taking that personal development as a leadership team really, really seriously has made a huge difference for our company uh, in a really short amount of time. So what is an Evan management system? Because um, you seem like a the loner comparatively. Are you not? That's the perception I think people have that you, a lot of companies, they operate with two people or something like that. Do you, who is your partner? Do you need one or? I am so not a loner. I okay. think like, there's been like this strange uh, conflation of like my personality. Like I'm a, sort of like a private person. I don't really like like talking to the media and stuff. And right. uh, you know, with the exception being you here well, thank today. You. Um, but <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but I think that's been conflated to uh, say that our team works that way. And that's not the case at all. Uh, we, we have a team that works really well together. Um, and, and I'm really proud of that. And we, we all have shared goals and we hold each other accountable. Um, and that's had to change, you know, that's had to change. It hasn't always been the case, um, right. but that's absolutely critical. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to execute uh, right. this quickly. I think one thing that I help do at the company is really try to, you know, set the tone, provide the vision, and, and then try to guide people back to our philosophy sometimes when we stray. And so I think there are moments when, you know, it can be tempting for someone to look over their shoulder at what everyone else is doing uh -huh. uh, and then try to do that at Snap, right? I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed that have said, like, you should just add likes, right? And it's like, yeah. well... Let me tell you why that's not what we do at Snap and right. why we think that's really important to self-expression. You just like eject them out of the room when they do that. <laughs> I try to be really patient and explain. Uh, right. Another one of my mentors said like, look, your job as a leader is just to explain stuff all the time. Right. And so I really tried to explain our philosophy and, and how we think about the world and our products. And so I think for me as a leader, that's, that's been uh, critical. Uh, but I think the idea of me as a loner is sort of, uh, you know. It's interesting, it's there. It's there that the idea that you're, it is, it absolutely. It's a little depressing, I guess. Yeah, it is. Um, so, um, <laughs> sad loner by himself. Um, so, no, I think your life is just fine, it seems like it from your Instagram. Uh, no, I'm kidding, I'll get to that. <laughs> uh, I'm teasing. We're going to take a quick break now from a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with this interview from the Code Conference after this.
Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, host of With Friends Like These. It's a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I have conversations with people across the political and cultural spectrums about what they believe and why. This isn't another show where a liberal or conservative either yell at each other or try to find common ground. This is about learning to see through someone else's eyes. With Friends Like These comes out every Friday. Hope you follow along and you leave feeling inspired to listen to those around you. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? Kara, you know who I talked to this week. You were sitting with me on stage when we talked to them. This is our conversation with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, who I think you accused of being an automaton or robot or a feelingless person. She has real feelings, Kara. Uh, and also CTO Mike Schrepfer. You know what we talked about because you were there. If you weren't there, we talked about a lot of things. Um, the main idea was Facebook's sort of acceptance or not acceptance of their responsibility for uh, the entire world, two billion people at least. It is a long, wide-ranging conversation. I think we did a good job. You be the judge. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So talk about your, but you manage, you've had a lot of upheaval in the management. You know, it gets written about, and it may not be completely accurate, it might be accurate. What, what do you, is happening there when different people leave and holding, because ultimately building the right team is over time. And I, I, I've seen it happen today. Well, I've seen it like people come in and go and they can either cycle up or cycle bad. So I don't find that that unusual, but you have had a lot of turnovers. So talk about what, what's the problem that would people stay or go or what do you need there? I think there's a combination of factors. If I, if I were to look at um, sort of, I guess maybe the key ones, I think first and foremost, obviously the company has changed so dramatically in a very short period of time. So we now have, I don't know, like almost 3,000 people. A couple of years ago, we had a couple hundred. And so to scale a team that quickly right. actually requires a changing skill set because the things that work uh, when you're a really small company don't work when you're a lot larger. Right. And so that, that's been one uh, huge factor, I think. And another one, and it sort of relates to that, I think is really about adaptability. And you know that has to do obviously with the rate at which the company is changing and needing to grow faster, but also has to do with how you approach problems at Snap. And so one of the things I've seen is that people who are absolutely brilliant, who are geniuses, experts in their field, come to Snap and have a hard time approaching problems in a new way. And they want to continue what they've been doing in the past. And for us, that's really challenging um, because we really want people to approach problems um, with, with almost a blank canvas. That's how we arrived at solutions like stories or lenses or uh, you know, ephemeral messaging. And so I think for us, having that open-mindedness and, and willingness to approach problems from different angles is really important. And then I think the last one, and this has become more important to me over time, you know, in the past, the way we ran the team, people were sort of responsible for their own sort of verticals. And, uh, that just doesn't work uh, to be a high-functioning leadership team. You need everyone to be accountable for the same goals and to work together to do that. And so right. a huge part of that is then making sure you hire people who really work well with other people and make right. them better. Right. And so I think across those sort of three, I would say, um, and I'm sure there are others, uh, those are sort of how I think about building the right team. Building the right team. So let's get to the story today, which we talked about diversity. There's a very tough story on Cheddar, a very good story, actually, about problems at Snapchat, which Trust me, is so normal for the whole, every single company has this issue. And this was your turn to talk about it. You had someone who left who wrote a pretty tough letter uh, about the culture. Talk about what your reaction to that, because you guys admitted this was a problem. We've been trying to fix it. This was 
they left last November, the, 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 the letter that went to everyone, it, it was an engineer, a woman engineer there, talked about a toxic male culture, uh, models at a party, which you, you also objected to, but you're, you're the CEO. Um, all kinds of things where a Game of Thrones-like mentality uh, to male. Talk about that. Yeah, uh, you know, that letter was a, was a really good wake-up call for us because, you know, obviously we're constantly thinking about how to have the culture that we want and how to reinforce the values that we want. And we're, we're thinking about it even more because, as I mentioned, the company has grown so fast. And so to take on that challenge of a company growing that quickly, hiring people that quickly, and then reinforce the culture and values is really challenging. And I think the wake-up call for us with that letter was that we needed to do even more and needed to do it faster, mm -hmm. right? And so we reorganized the engineering team, put new leadership in place. Um, you know, we actually hired external consultants to come up, you know, come into the company, talk to people, mm -hmm. and help show us areas where we could improve. We ran a, you know, a company-wide survey to identify other issues and act, act on them. Uh, we changed our promotion process. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the progress that our, our team made in the last six months. I'm, gl I'm glad we started moving a lot faster on, the, on these issues, and obviously there's a lot more to do. Um, so uh, we're going to stay focused and, and keep And moving. you released the numbers, which are as bad as all of them. They're all, but why is that? I want to get to why it is, because a lot of people are like, uh, you know, and I think, you know, even Facebook's coming out next, we were surprised by this, this we didn't realize this. Why don't you realize this? What, what is, I, I know it sounds crazy, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I do feel like sometimes, and you do get that, we think it's important, we think it's a priority, we, and then it does, one, it doesn't change, and two, what, is it, is it an evolving nature of you or your, your management team or what happens where it comes as such a surprise that is not a surprise to a lot of people? Well, I think if we go back a little bit, I, I'm not sure it was a surprise to us. For example, I think the article talks about um, you know, this uh, female engineer feeling uncomfortable because she overheard something that a senior uh, leader had said, and she went to HR, and right. HR had a conversation with him and talked about it and said, hey, that's not appropriate. Um, right. And, and I, ultimately, to me, uh, that is the sign of, the, of a culture that we want where people are identifying problems and speaking up about them. And right. so I think like ground, you know, like step one, like talking about that problem, having people come forward and talk about it allows us to, to fix the problems. And so I'm, I'm happy that that occurred in our company. Um, I do think we're aware, and I do think we're uh, working on it. So, um, you know, I, I think the question is always, you know, what else can we do? And we're constantly thinking about that and trying to learn. Right. And then, what do you do as a, a leader? Because sometimes I think leaders put them as priority number seven or priority number fourteen, and never priority number one. And because the only thing is, when I was reading that story today, and it was, you know, they mentioned as usual, there's a party with scantily clad women. I literally, I looked, 10 years ago, I wrote one about Yahoo like that. There was like strippers on stage at a Yahoo event or Twitter, they had a frat party that was just, you know, it just, I'm sort of like, what, do you, what has to happen from your perspective? Because here you have all the power, what has to happen? Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> um, I'm holding you totally responsible for all of it. No, I'm not. I'm not, because I want you to, I, I want to understand. Well, I think, you know, Megan, for example, backstage had a great idea that like, hey, at every single one of your leadership meetings, you should just make this a, a standing item and right. talk about the progress you made that week, right? right? And that was a great idea. It's not something we talk about every week at our leadership meetings. So, uh, you know, maybe every other week, but I think just relentlessly repeating it and making it a priority for senior leadership is really important and there's more we can do there. Um, but again, I think, you know, people are gonna make mistakes and, uh, you know, <laughs> 
I, I was frustrated, to, to say the least, to see uh, people dressed up as deer at a holiday party uh, right. or an anniversary party or whatever right. it was, just because it's also strange. But, yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I think we but need to at the party didn't go get rid of the deer. Oh, we did. Oh, no, no, no yeah. literally. Like, what, why, what's, what is happening? Why? Like, right. This is not, right. Okay. And who made that decision? Uh, that was someone who is on our events team and, you know, she made a mistake and life goes on. Um, right. But I think, again, having a culture where, like, people make mistakes, they, we give them feedback and they grow, um, I, I think is really important. And, and I think especially uh, with the younger workforce, people are going to make mistakes. We should expect that. It's part of the learning process. Right. And having that mechanism whereby we turn that into feedback and then change is critical. All right, let's move on to another topic, Facebook. Oh, God, poor Evan. He's being such a good sport here. Um, no, but here, you are a very creative person. You know, I think that. Um, you create these things, and they borrow them uh, rather extensively. Um, <laughs> tell me how that feels. People borrow my things all the time. It drives me crazy. I want to kill them, so. Um. Yeah, I think it bothers my wife more than it bothers me. Um, but, uh, gosh. So, I, th I think fundamentally it's important to understand that Snapchat is not just a bunch of features. Right. It really has an underlying philosophy that runs directly counter to traditional social media. Absolutely. And I think that's why uh, traditional social media feels threatened. Because fundamentally, if people realize that you know, competing with their friends for likes and attention is kind of unpleasant and like really not that great, um, then I think they're going to look for alternatives. And what we said at Snapchat is actually there's this great alternative, which is all about building deeper relationships with people that you're close to. Right. Uh, and we believe that empowering that self-expression is, is really important. And so I think, uh, while, while of course, um, they, you know, I, I think what they've done is they've changed their products and... I think they actually changed their mission, right? But I think fundamentally, uh, they're having a really hard time changing the DNA of their company. And the DNA of their company is all about having people compete with each other online for attention. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, uh, you know, sort of as, um, as time goes on, I think it will become more and more clear to people that uh, our values are actually really hard to copy. And I think mm -hmm. the reason why is because values are something that you feel. Um, right. And so I think over time, especially given the, the relationship we've built uh, with our community, which I feel is very strong, right. um, I, you know, I, I think that, that it will be harder to, uh, to really copy the essence of what Snapchat is. How, what is the impact when they do? Because I had Kevin Systrom on my thing, and he, I said, you've just taken this. This is really kind of offensive to me that you've done this. And he goes, well, just because Evan invented the car radio doesn't mean I can't do a better one. And yes, that's what we did. And just didn't even bother pretending. And why should he? Because it's obvious what happened. So how do you then keep, it isn't a feature war, but it's if they, what is the impact when they do something you do and do a pretty good job copying it? It's an old, you know, people used to accuse Microsoft of that quite a bit. So talk about that. Like, what do you do then? I think we do what we've always done, which is just continue to innovate and you know, continue to deliver really great products for our customer. And we've always believed that if we really listen to our customers and provide them with things that they totally love, um, that they'll, they'll use our services. Do you feel, what is the pressure like when they do that? What, do you, what does your wife do then? Tell me what your wife does. <laughs> um. I like a good dramatic pause, so it's fine. So, so, so I guess what I'm saying um, 
is that fundamentally... It doesn't matter. Yeah, fu and fundamentally, um, we have to stay true to our DNA and who we are as a company and our desire to empower people to express themselves. And I think, um, you know, people are going to continue to follow the innovations that we've created um, and that that's part of how this industry works. And ultimately, I think is, you know, if, if you want it personally how I feel about it, I think as a yeah. designer, uh, and I think the designers on our team would say the same thing, that the number one feeling for a designer, the best thing in the entire world, is if you design something that's so simple and so elegant that the only thing other people can do is copy it exactly. Right. That, as a designer, is the most fantastic triumph in the world. And so I think from... <laughs> you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, it really is the most fantastic thing in the world. And so I think um, that, that because our team gets their joy out of changing the world in the right direction, uh, you know, that that will continue to be uh, our strategy. And I think, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying to take it a step further is that we would really appreciate it if they copied our data protection practices also. Uh, oh. <laughs> because... <laughs> um, <laughs> So you know, maybe, maybe that's that. what Cheryl's announcing after. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of that, I want to finish up on values because you said the word value, and I say the word value a lot, and I think values are important because with values you have to make choices, and you have to you can't be we're a benign platform that has no we're trying to be everything to everyone. You cannot do that. You you can try, but it always runs into humanity. It runs into all. so picking values. I think is critically important, and very few tech people want to do that. They want it always. Um, and that's to me where a lot of the problems. Talk, talk about tech responsibility. You know, we, you have, and I have talked. You, 18 months ago, he was talking about the things that Facebook ran into this year, which was interesting. I remember that conversation. Um, the inability to control your platform or understand what's on it if you take the hands off the wheel. Talk about those choices because I think it really is important. Um, I guess. <laughs> This is sort of at, at a high level. I, I guess what I would say about this and, and how I feel, um, it, so, so obviously like life is not about making money. Life's not about winning awards. It's not about uh, like winning competitions or, or whatever. Um, life is really about like having an impact on the world, changing the way that people are experiencing the world, changing the way that you experience the world. And I think for me, um, one of the things that I worry about is that businesses very quickly reduce problems to numbers. And they think about themselves in terms of numbers and they get obsessed with driving numbers. And I think the interesting thing about humanity and about values uh, is that these are things that can't actually be quantified, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so for me, I think the big red flag uh, for all of us should be um, when we put more weight on things that, that can be counted instead of the things that can't be. Because the things that can't be counted are the things uh, that make us human and the things that are the most important to protect. So what happens now with the tech industry, with this, these hearings, these, you know, again, I'm gonna ask this question I asked of, uh, of uh, Tim Cook. What would you do if you were Mark Zuckerberg in this situation? You almost sold your company to him and then you didn't, allegedly. Knock on. Is that wood? Okay. Um, fundamentally, I think the changes have to go beyond uh, window dressing to real changes to the way that these platforms work, right? And I think the thing that concerns me the most 
um, and we've already seen this with GDPR, for example, uh, rather than complying with the actual spirit of GDPR and uh, the uh, data privacy practices, some companies just took their data processing practices and jammed them in the terms of service. And then they said, you know, because our data processing practices are in the terms of service and that's a contract with the user, we're compliant with GDPR, right? And that's why people got sued on the first day mm -hmm. the GDPR was enacted. Right. And so I think for me, uh, it's very clear this is a long road. It's a road that's going to be litigated. Um, but I, I think if you look at the shift and you look at the appreciation that people have uh, for user privacy and how fundamentally important it is uh, to humanity, uh, I think we're just getting started uh, in the way that people are going to have to change their businesses. And to what? Because it's all predicated on that. Um, well, I think it's important to point out, right, that there wasn't any Russian manipulation of Snapchat. No, they just used the right? system. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And that there are alternatives. Um, yeah. And that the way that you treat user privacy is really important. And for us, remember, that goes back to, you know, when we were in my dorm room, when it was just me and Bobby, when there were three or four people using our products, we cared about data retention, right? And it's taken seven years for people uh, in the technology industry to take a look at what we've done, getting rid of personal information rather than storing it, hoarding it forever. Yeah. And to say, hey, that, that actually kind of makes sense. And so I think for us, it's exciting to me that seven years later, after we built our business on this idea of data, uh, you know, data minimization, effectively, um, that the rest of the industry is starting to, to embrace that. And I think that will, that will have a positive impact. Do you expect a lot of regulation coming? I think that foolishly, some big companies want that because they believe they're best equipped to deal with regulation and that there are times in history when regulation has actually entrenched big companies because they're the most capable of complying. Uh, I think that's a huge mistake because I think that that would inhibit uh, innovation. But I do think there are some really great legal frameworks that are developing, like GDPR, that's really well thought out, that puts the user first, that gives the user control and choice, um, that will make a big, a big difference. And so I, I think um, there's going to be a balance. I think there will be some regulation. But I think at the same time, technology companies uh, need to incorporate the spirit of protecting user privacy. And if they're willing to change their businesses to do that, um, then I think we'll be able to find the happy medium. We're going to take another break to thank sponsors who bring this show to you. We'll return to this interview from the Code Conference after this. Hello, listeners of Recode Decode. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I am Grant Gordon, and we are co-hosts of a new podcast called Displaced from Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work. Right now, we're seeing the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, the biggest number of people displaced because of conflict. You've seen it in the headlines about Syria or Yemen or Jordan. If you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. Come subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Recode Decode with Kara Swisher. I'd also like to tell you about my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. Every week, we answer all of your questions about consumer tech and this week's tech news. This week, I talked to Peter Kafka and Casey Newton at the Code Conference 2018. What do we talk about, boys? Everything. 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 Like what? Come on. We talked about all the best speakers. Who said the most controversial thing? Are you doing what, that what voice? Cara, what, yeah. <laughs> what Kara said to Sheryl Sandberg offstage. No, yeah. we didn't really say that. We talked about what Evan Spiegel's really like behind the scenes. <laughs> Talk about Evan Spiegel's new shirt. Yeah. People didn't like that shirt. 
I, I thought it. it was great. It's kind okay. of a sweater. Okay. All right. In any case, it was a great podcast. And we talked about all the speakers of Code 2018, which was a really great conference, which is just wrapping up. We are recording this from Rancho Palos Verdes by the beautiful sea. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there. All right. Questions from the audience, please. Starting here. Hi, you were so thoughtful about talking about how you bring in business consultants from outside to help you and the leadership team. And then Kara pushed you pretty hard on the, you know, the frat, for want of a better term, the frat boy culture that appears a lot in tech. How many of those consultants, if you don't mind my asking, that are helping you with your business are women or people of color? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I don't have the exact breakout, uh, but obviously that's something that we pay attention to because we want to have a, vi- a wide variety of uh, perspectives in terms of people uh, who help us. So I'd be, you know, I actually can follow up with you and then figure that out and give you the exact numbers, but I don't have them off the top of my head. Thank you. Hi, found the tall mic, which is great. Uh, hi, Evan. So I have a question about um, news. You know, Facebook obviously dealing with a lot of the Russia stuff, a lot of hate speech, Twitter clearly dealing with a similar problem. You obviously think of Snapchat as a different kind of platform, but you've got Discover, right, which is kind of this forum for news and information for kind of the broad set of users. So how do you curate that? How do you keep, are you going to continue to curate that very closely? And as more people, as the user base grows and more people want in, when the Daily Caller, maybe they already have a Snapchat channel, the Daily Caller calls up and says we want to do it, or Stormfront is like, hey, we have a big following and we really want to talk about the issues that are facing you know, white nationalists or whatever. How do you guys manage that? How do you curate that? Is it, you know, what, what is your policy? What is your thinking? What is your the sort of technic, technical and, and, and intellectual thinking around how you manage that as you grow? It's a really great question, and I can talk a little bit to just kind of like the foundational elements. So first of all, you know, we have humans review all the people who distribute content on Discover, um, and I think that works because like really only like 1%-ish of content is good. So, uh, you know, we don't have to have, uh, you know, uh, zillions of people doing that. Um, we just really try to curate things that, that people want to watch. Um, so you use all humans. It's not a, uh, suddenly an AI. Uh, you know, I'm sure we use some technology tools, but human beings look at it. And, right. Um, you know, so uh, I, I think that's that's one piece. I, th- I think the second piece that you bring up that's really important is it really has a lot to do with how we structure Discover in the first place, which is to surface a lot of different perspectives and to put the publication front and center, right? So I think what's really interesting about Discover is that you start understanding that someone ha- like you know the Wall Street Journal, for example, has a different point of view than the New York Times when or, or the Economist or whatever uh, when you're when you're reading Discover. And so having people like you know making it really clear that those perspectives are different and then providing a wide variety of them. I think is really helpful to our user base. So I, I, you know, I don't think we'd ever uh, include something on our platform that is like blatantly hate speech. But as long as we're very clearly labeling uh, different people's perspectives, I think we're open to a wide variety of those perspectives. So, so on that, like if it is Breitbart or maybe they already have a Snap channel or the Daily Caller or, you know, how do you rate the publications? I guess is what I'm saying. Like where do you draw the line and how do you draw that line? So I personally probably do not have the right skill set to do that. So we have people with editorial backgrounds that, that really think deeply uh, about those things and make those decisions. So you're not blatantly like just, we're the free speech platform. Anybody who wants to put news on here can do it. It's got to be, you guys have to look at it and say, yes, we want this. No, we don't. Yeah, we've taken a very, a very different approach in that regard. Yeah, good. Thanks. So you're not group having a crowdsourcing who's good. Uh, not, no, not on Discover. No. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Uh, right here? You have one? Okay, right here. 
Uh, Tim Peterson from Digiday. Uh, you said positive things about GDPR. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is described as like mini GDPR. It's not a perfect analogy. Um, it's something that Facebook and Google have supported the opposition group. Facebook's kind of pulled the support, but not their money. Snap, what are your thoughts? Is this something you support or against? And if you do support or are against it, um, how does that take effect? Are you actively supporting or opposing? You know, I'm not familiar enough with the exact specifics of it to give you a thoughtful enough answer. So this is another one we could probably uh, follow up on. But I think, you know, if it's consistent with some of the sort of basic principles of, of GDPR, that's something that we, you know, we'd be supportive of. It's basically, it's uh, the foundation of it is, is right to know. It, it borrows that from GDPR, but it's opt out by default. Can I talk to you about it after? Sorry. That. That'd be great. great. Okay, cool. Very Thanks. quickly, you only have a very short time. Go ahead. Hey, Evan, Alex Heath from Chatter. Um, I'm glad you all already talked a lot about the diversity issues. Thanks, Kara, for He's that. He's the author of the piece. Um, so I wanted to talk about the business. It seems like to me that a lot of the wind has been taken out of stories with the redesign and with Instagram. If you have metrics to share, please correct me. Um, so given that your ad product is so closely tied to stories now and Snapchat is also a messaging platform, how are you thinking about monetization outside of stories? You've dabbled in e-commerce, you're dabbling in hardware. What excites you the most about potential other revenue streams? If you could just turn off story ads, what would you be doing? Well, I think I should probably clarify a little bit about what we did with the redesign because it is actually really closely tied to stories and about opening up more inventory. So if you, if you look at the application before the redesign, the stories page just had a list of your friends, right? And sometimes, uh, you know, mixed in there were friends like celebrities that you don't actually know. And what we found that, over, you know, we found that over time, uh, influencers, for example, people who post really frequently, often because it's their job, were ending up at the top of the list because that list was recency-based. And so our stories page, at the top of the page, you know, a lot of people had content from people they didn't know very well. And so what we wanted to do with the redesign was you know, really put your friends first, make sure when you open the application, your friends are at the top of the page, but then open up this world of content so you don't just see content that you've had to add as a friend. You can see a bunch of content uh, that's personalized just for you, uh, but you don't have to make that person your friend. <laughs> and so I think for us, that was really our way of thinking about how to scale the stories opportunity because you're inherently limited if you're only you know, showing stories that someone's manually added. Um, but for us, with the redesign, we have an infinite scroll now of really, really great content that's personalized for you. And so I think th there may be some misperception about that opportunity for our business. And, and really, that was one of the big reasons why we wanted to do the redesign, to create that opportunity for our business and also stay true you know, to our mission of empowering people to express themselves. So we tried to do both at the same time. I can't speak to you know, future uh, products or opportunities, but... Well, you've dabbled in e-commerce e already um, and hardware. I mean, out of, say, those two things, what excites you the most about those two things? Are those things we could expect more of? Hardware is a, a really important pillar of our strategy. So if you look at the three things that we're investing a lot in, we have Lens Studio, which allows you to create all these great augmented reality experiences. We have this core Snapchat application that, you know, a, a lot of people use all day long and where we can iterate really, really quickly uh, on those augmented reality experiences. And then we have spectacles that, you know, while still in its infancy, I think has a lot of potential uh, to overlay computing on, on the world around you. And so I think if you look at Snapchat, and again, very early to, to just open Snapchat into the camera, into your experience, but to imagine that, you know, with the evolution of computing, we've gone from mainframes, right, to people now looking at really small computers in their hands. I think if we look at the evolution of computing over the next several decades, computing is going to be overlaid uh, on, on the world around 
around you. And I think spectacles is a really important part of making that happen. So for me, uh, you know, as it pertains to our hardware strategy, I, I don't think that's going to generate a ton of revenue for us tomorrow. Uh, but I do think it's a really important investment in the future. Great. I think that's all we have time for. Evan, thank you. One last question. As a CEO, would you ever consider selling your company if you had to? Would you? You have not. I think as a fiduciary, we're always required to consider it. <laughs> That's a great question. Thank you so much, Evan Steele. Thanks for listening to this interview from the Code Conference 2018. We'll be releasing all of the interviews from this year's event in this podcast feed and on Peter Kafka's show, Recode Media. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Recode Media with Peter Kafka to hear interviews with people like 21st Century Fox CEO James Murdoch, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek, and Facebook COO and CTO Sheryl Sandberg and Mike Schrepfer. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. And don't miss my other podcast, Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find that show and Recode Media wherever you listen to Recode Decode. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Hey, I'm Russ Frustick, the host of the History of Fun podcast. Each week, we explore the hidden backstories behind the things you love to do. For example, did you know the Neopets were led by high-ranking members of the Church of Scientology? Also, this kind of blew my mind. The original Mr. Potato Head was, wait for it, a real potato. If any of that sounds interesting to you, new episodes of the History of Fun are added every Monday. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.